Good morning, Grace Hill Church. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Today we're going to read John 3, 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for uh, our nation. Today we celebrate the birth of our nation, our freedom, our independence, uh, which all comes from you. Lord, uh, our nation uh, has more churches worshiping you this morning than in any other place. Our nation has more pastors and preachers preaching your word today than any other place on earth. Our nation has more students in seminary studying your word and studying to become uh, ministers of your gospel than any other place on earth. We have more missionaries that come out of the United States of America into the world than in any other country in the world. And so we thank you, Lord, for the many blessings that you have poured out on our nation and for so many years. Even in the time of great division and struggle and trouble, uh, your hand is still upon us. Father, I pray that the truth of the reading this morning, that you came to this earth, that you sent your only son, that we might be united with you, and also the truth that you did not come to condemn the world. And for those of us who love you and trust you, Lord, um, your scripture says there is no condemnation for those that are in you. So, Lord, this morning we pray that that truth would resonate in us and through us in all that we do and say. We pray that everything that we do and say would bring glory and honor to you. And as Alan comes to preach your word, uh, may you touch our hearts with the truth of what he's going to bring to us today. We thank you. We give you praise. We give you honor. We give you glory. And we pray all of these things in the powerful, matchless name of the one who rose from the dead, the name of Jesus of Nazareth. It's in that name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. 
Amen. Dan Esperanza, thank you so much for reading the word for us and opening our time in prayer. Grace Hill, good morning. How are you? Good. It's a light crowd this morning. I know we have a lot of people traveling this week and uh, lots of others joining us online. So if you're joining us online right now, we're glad uh, that you're with us and uh, really hope that um, we get to see you in person uh, here really soon. Uh, my name's Alan. If you're new with us, one of the pastors here at Grace Hill Church. And so afterwards, um, would love to be able uh, to meet you and to talk in the lobby and uh, get to know you a little bit more. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead, open that up to uh, the book of Galatians. It's a letter uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote in your New Testament. Um, so just head on over, uh, start flipping around the New Testament. You have a few minutes before we actually read it. Uh, and we're going to be in chapter 5 together uh, this morning. And um, if you want to use your phone app, it's totally fine with us. The scriptures will be on the screen uh, as well. Um, but four years ago this month, so in July of 2017, um, our church was just preparing to launch publicly. We launched in September of 2017. And so we had a small crew about 60 people who were gathering every Sunday and uh, getting ready for us to uh, launch uh, here in Herndon. And we were going through a sermon series called Joining God's Mission. And the purpose of this sermon series was to basically establish for our congregation that was getting ready to plant, um, what is the mission that God has given us? And what is it going to look like for us to pursue that and fulfill that as a church but the other question we were also trying to answer was, what kind of culture does God want us to have inside the church? Because we believe at Grace Hill that the culture inside the church should be distinct from the culture outside the church. Uh, I actually think it's, it's way too common uh, for people to you know, experience dysfunction in their everyday lives. Maybe they experience that in their workplaces or in their neighborhoods, maybe in their homes, whatever it is, in their relationships, there's a particular kind of way we experience that in the world. And I think it's all too common for people then to step inside of a church and actually experience some of the same relational dysfunction inside the church as they do outside. And we believe that the way that people should be viewed and treated and loved and cared for inside the church should be radically different than what is experienced outside. And the scriptures tell us that the primary thing that makes the church radically distinct from the world around us, or at least the thing that should make us radically distinct, is our love and care for one another. The Bible says that our love for one another inside the church is our greatest apologetic that we have that verifies the things that we claim to believe inside the scripture. It should be the thing that makes the church most attractive to our town, is our love for one another. But churches, and I think even at Grace Hill, right, this can happen. No church is perfect. Churches can often not be marked by this, by people having a Christ-like love for one another. Rather, I think sometimes 
churches are often infected with the disease of comparison, right? I know I experienced this in my heart. People comparing themselves to one another. It may, it may go something like, you know, we compare how much we know the Bible with one another. Ah, that person, they're really smart. I wish I had a relationship with Jesus like they did, or how eloquently one can pray, or maybe we compare our appearance or our politics or the way that our kids behave in the hallways in Grace Hill Kids, or maybe we compare the education choices that we make as families, or we compare diets or lifestyles or life stage or whatever it is, on and on and on. It's this disease of comparison that can flourish inside the church. And it attacks us in different ways. It could attack us in the form of pride, where we look at others and we feel superior to them. It could attack us in the form of insecurity, where we look at others and we see ourselves as inferior to them. And I think this reality, this disease of comparison, creates a culture within a church where you, you've got a community and the way they primarily relate to one another is through fear and comparison. Constantly trying to discern what other people think, constantly trying to manage expectations to ensure that people don't get the wrong idea about who we are. And compare that to having a church culture where we primarily relate to one another through the truth of the gospel, the freedom of the gospel, where other people's opinions don't have that much power over us, and where actually our opinion of others is shaped by what Christ and the Word of God says about them. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. We've been in a study of the Gospel of Luke for a long time. We're going to just take a short one-week break from that, and I just want us to study a couple of verses from Galatians 5, and I want to go back to a sermon that I preached four years ago, and I want to remind us this morning of what I did four years ago, this glorious truth that in Christ, you are neither superior nor inferior to anyone. So if you have your Bible, Go to Galatians 5. I'm just going to read uh, two short verses, verses 25 and 26. We're going to dig into it, see what that means and how this applies to our lives. So look at this, verses 25 and 26. The Apostle Paul's writing this letter. He simply says this. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, that's a really short passage, just two verses, but this passage carries a whole lot of weight because what the Apostle Paul is doing is giving us a very practical application, all right, Within the context of this mountain of theology, he just spent the first five chapters of this letter in Galatians explaining to us. And so I want to give us a bit of the context here to understand this context that Paul gives us this command. So in verse 25, 
Paul speaks of keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. And all that means is literally follow the leadership of the Spirit in your life. As the Spirit is moving you and provoking you and guiding you, follow that. Like, do what the Spirit says. That's all that keeping in step with the Spirit means. But in order to understand the nuts and bolts of how to do that, we need to understand the point that Paul is trying to make in the entire letter of Galatians. So I'm going to try to do that in just a couple of minutes, if I can. So what I'm going to do is give us two sentences. And in these two sentences, I hope this at least is a good shot at trying to summarize the letter to the Galatians, all right? So here's the first sentence. It's this. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you are literally a child of God. This is one of the the biggest uh, pieces of theology, the biggest point that Paul's trying to make in the book of Galatians. If you follow Jesus, you are literally, you could even say genealogically, a child of God. And that's significant because what Paul's doing is he's writing this letter to a church that is being heavily influenced by a group of people called the Judaizers. These were some Jewish Christians, and they had this belief that if you wanted to be right with God, uh, you had to not only believe in Jesus and his atoning work on the cross, but in addition to that, you also had to keep much of the Jewish law. And this was what Paul declares a false teaching, a false gospel. And so Paul is writing Galatians to say, no, 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 that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus plus a bunch of law keeping from the Jewish law. It is Jesus only is all you need in order to be made right with God. But many of these Judaizers were ethnically Jewish meaning they were biologically, genealogically in the line of Abraham. And so they believed that for the inferior Gentiles who weren't in the line of Abraham, the least they could do, right, is follow the Jewish law. But what Paul's doing, he's not just arguing, oh, that no, the Gentiles don't have to do that. One of the things that Paul is arguing is that no, 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 those who are in Christ, those who follow Jesus, actually are in the line of Abraham is one of his points. See, he explains to us in chapters three and four that if you follow Jesus, you're united to Jesus, like you're, you're one with him. Okay, this is language Paul uses in all of his letters, that you are in Christ. And so he explains that Jesus himself is in the line of Abraham. And if he is in the line of Abraham and you are united to him, then in a spiritual and way more significant sense, so are you. So you are, as a follower of Jesus, a part of the people of God. In the line of Abraham, you could say. Part of the covenant, child of God. And so that's why one of the reasons Paul argues that for the Gentiles, that the gospel, it's not just for the Jews, it's, it's for non-Jews too, it's for Gentiles. So that's the first sentence. If you follow Jesus, you are literally a child of God, part of the people of God. That is who you are, you're in. Second sentence is this, as someone who is a child of God, because that is now your identity, God has put his spirit in you. 
And so Paul explains in Galatians that that spirit, God's Holy Spirit in you, leads and prompts you to live in a particular way. So in Galatians, Paul talks a lot about, in chapter 5 primarily, this battle between the flesh and the spirit. So the flesh kind of prompts and leads you to live in a particular way, and the spirit prompts and leads you to live in a particular way, right? Uh, You could go to chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Um, It's not on the screen, but Paul says basically that the works of the flesh are this. Here's how the flesh is going to lead you to live, right? And he lists all kinds of things. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, and on and on it goes. That's what the flesh drives you to do. But he says, but the Spirit, verse 22 and 23, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the things the Spirit leads you to do. And the call that we have as Christians is to live according to the Spirit because that's who we are and try to put to death what the flesh is trying to make us do. All right? So one, if you're in Christ, you're literally a child of God. And two, because you are a child of God, God has put his spirit in you to help lead and guide you in the way that you live. All right, those aren't reversed. It's not God tries to lead and guide you in a way to live, and therefore you might become a child of God. No, it's, it's the right order. Child of God because of Christ, and God puts his spirit in you to help lead you as you live. So Paul tells us here in verse 25, If that's true, then we need to follow the leadership of the Spirit. And what is the immediate practical application out of that truth in verse 25 that Paul gives us in verse 26? Let us not become conceited. Right, so there's something about the Spirit in us that pushes us toward not being conceited. Conceited. Now, this does make sense when you take into account the context of the letter. Paul is writing about people, these Judaizers, who took pride in their genealogy and in their law keeping. What they believed about God and what they believed about themselves caused them to be conceited, to to see themselves as superior to other people around them. But the gospel that Paul is preaching doesn't actually give you much to be proud about. In fact, Paul is trying to explain in the letter that the law was given, I mean, just chapter three, right? The, The law was given to humble us and convince us that Nothing in this world is powerful enough to to make us clean and whole and righteous before God. Not our genealogy, not our law keeping, not our righteous deeds. None of that will work. The only thing that is powerful enough to make us right with God is the grace of God through Jesus. That's it. It can't be Jesus plus law keeping. That's the whole point. So when Paul says, let us keep in step with the Spirit and not become conceited, he says that because he knows that one, belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ should not inflate our self-view. 
right? Because everything that we have and all that we are is a gift of grace from God. But Paul also knows, number two, that it shouldn't deflate our self-view either. Because we are children of God, and God sees us as valuable and worth pursuing. But rather, number three, belief in the gospel, what I believe Paul is teaching, should stabilize our self-view. Stabilize. What does that mean? To have a stable self-view. You know, God created us, right? Not as self-sufficient beings, right? He engineered us and designed us to need his love. He engineered and designed us to need love from others. Like this desire in every one of us to be loved and accepted and approved and cared for, that's not a bad desire. That is a good, godly desire that God built into us. But what sin can do is twist that need and twist that desire and lead all of us into this self-conscious, anxious state where we try and satisfy that very godly need in ungodly ways. We become conceited. Uh, Tim Keller uh, defines being conceited in this way. He says, it's a deep insecurity, a perceived absence of honor and glory leading to a need to prove our worth to ourselves and others. Now, if we look to the rest of verse 26, what we see is there are two ways that being conceited can manifest itself. He says, provoking one another and envying one another. Now, these are two different things. Uh, provoking one another, it, it's essentially to bully someone, even if it's passive. Right, So when I provoke someone, what I'm doing is I'm approaching someone from a perceived place of superiority. I'm better than them. And so I'm provoking them so that they feel inferior to me. All right, Kind of like a bully would do that. But envying one another is different. That's when I'm approaching someone, right? And maybe I feel jealousy, right? But I'm approaching someone from this perceived place of inferiority where I see them as better than me. But really, whether we're provoking or envying, right, either way, all of this is coming from conceit, a drive to prove our worth to ourselves and others. And here is the point of all of this, is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we get to experience the joy of not being superior to anyone and also not being inferior to anyone. The gospel stabilizes our self-view and that has massive implications, not only for our own joy and peace and contentment in life, but also for our ability to love and care and serve for others. And so I just wanna break both of those down for the rest of our time. So we'll start here. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not superior to anyone. Let me ask this question. Is there anything that could be more damaging to the witness of the church than us as a people feeling superior to the world around us? 
to our neighbors, our coworkers, the culture around us. I mean, we can look to our morality and how we follow the commands of the Bible. We can look to our exclusive claims on truth. We can look to our politics or the way that we espouse our politics. And these things can fuel this feeling of superiority, especially in our hyperpolarized and divisive age that we find ourselves in. But these things should not inflate our self-view, but actually quite the opposite. Our faith tells us that we are not morally superior beings. When you read the Bible, it does not hold up for us morally superior beings than the rest of the world. Our faith tells us actually that who we are is we are recipients of grace. Our faith says that we have devastatingly fallen short of what God's moral standard would be for us, so much so that God would have been just to punish us for all of eternity. But in God's grace, he made a way through Jesus to save us. Jesus was able to stand in our place, receive the condemnation that we did deserve, and give us his righteous record so that we could stand before God as people who are holy and not sinful. But listen, that was not a holiness that we accomplished. The message of the gospel is that is a holiness that actually Jesus accomplished. Right, The gospel giving us the superiority complex is like the man who got rescued from drowning in the pool by a lifeguard then gets out of the pool and starts bragging about how good of a swimmer he is. It doesn't make sense. It's ridiculous. And that kind of ridiculousness will never breed a people that love one another and their neighbor in the kind of way that Jesus calls us to. So where do we struggle with the superiority complex? Well, let me give us all a diagnostic question uh, that that could help us discern this. Here's the question. I'll throw it on the screen too. Who are the people in your life where you question their motivations? I want you to ask yourself this question. Who are the people in your life where you question their motivations? And I want to talk about motivations because we can't really see them in others. We can only assume When we think we know someone's motivations without them outright telling us their motivations, we're always making an assumption about someone, right? So it could go something like this, right? Well, uh, that person drives that kind of car because they, uh, they love the things of the world too much, right? Or that person doesn't serve as much because they're just here to consume and not contribute. Or that person has that political opinion because they're too swayed by culture and not the Bible. Or that person is late because they think the world revolves around them. They're on their own timetable. Guys, I, like, as, even if I just like, read all of those, I'm guilty of all four of making those assumptions about people and their motivations. As I examine my own heart, this Junk is all inside my heart where I question the motivations of people. I presume upon the condition of their heart. What it means is I feel superior to them because when I make those assumptions, I'm also assuming that my motives are pure. So it could go something like this, right? Well, well, uh, that person drives that kind of car because they love the things of the world, but I, I mean, look at the car I drive. 
Uh, that person doesn't serve as much because they're here to consume and, and, and not to contribute. But I, I mean, look how much I do. And on and on it goes. Comparing to myself. And here's where it really stings for the church. Is our feelings of superiority will stop us from engaging people at a level where we can genuinely love them, know them, develop meaningful friendship with them, because we're gonna keep them at an arm's length. And the gospel rescues us from that because it stabilizes our self-view. It tells us that in the eyes of God, we're no different than that person. We're both recipients of grace. And so Christian, you're not, you're not superior to anyone. You're free of that burden. And so go love people freely, not worrying about how you stack up. And as a follower of Jesus, you're not inferior to anyone, to anyone. So many of us live our lives in constant fear. I mean, ask yourself, have you ever done or said or thought any of this before, right? Have you ever replayed a conversation in your head with other people from previous days trying to figure out what you said and if that was embarrassing or not? Wondering, ah, should I send a text message to clarify a few things? Or have you ever said to yourself, uh, you're like in community group and you prayed and you're like, oh, that prayer didn't make any sense. Or am I talking too much? Do people see me as a know-it-all? Do people talk about how annoying I am behind their back, my back? Uh, wait, do these people just feel like they're obligated to hang out with me because we're in the same church? Why didn't that person say hi to me? What was that look? That was a weird look. Well, that person hasn't texted me back yet. I wonder what's going on. Why wasn't I invited to that event? And just on and on. And we, we wig ourselves out constantly because as we look at all of the people around us, we view ourselves as inferior to them. And we live in fear that one day the truth is gonna come out that we actually are. You know, as a pastor, uh, I have seen this so many times within the church, where you have a group of people and they're supposed to be in community with one another. But they can't engage at a certain level of friendship. They can't really get to know one another. They're kind of all subconsciously holding one another at an arm's length because they all fear each other. They're afraid of one another. And what's crazy is the exponential effect of loneliness that occurs when a group of people, they all fear each other. They all desire to have friendship with one another, but they're all afraid of one another. And so how can we know where we struggle with this? Well, let me give you another diagnostic question similar to the one before. It's this, who are the people in your life that you fear are questioning your motivation? You fear that they question the motives of your faith or see you as someone who doesn't 
really know that much, or they see you as someone who's materialistic, or they see you as someone who's immature, or they see you as someone who talks too much or is lazy or whatever, just fill in the blank. I struggle with this all the time as a pastor, probably every single time I stand at this pulpit. The reality is, though, that even in that, the hard truth is it's still conceit. It's being consumed with ourselves. And it's understandable because we all desire to be loved and cared for by one another. But the gospel sets us free of that because it says that you are a child of God, that you have the spirit of God in you, that God is delighted in you even when you mess up. And so we don't have to be imprisoned by our fear of inferiority because you're not inferior to anyone. And the gospel can stabilize your self-view. And here's what it can do. It can set you free to becoming the one who calms the fears of others. It can set you free to be the person who goes, man, I think in this room, there's a lot of people who are feeling insecure. And I have the ability to love them by going and calming that fear. Showing them the kind of love that God and all of us have for them. That there is nothing to fear. That's radically distinct in the world. People who think that way. Who enter in the room secure by the love of God and say, man, I can be a person who calms fears people who are comfortable with who they are, free to love one another, not for selfish gain, but just out of love. And that kind of love, I believe, is only made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that kind of love that makes the church actually beautifully distinct in the world. And so imagine with me a group of people, a church, where when everyone looks to their left or right, they don't see anyone that they feel superior to, but people that they've been called to do life with, to love, to care for, to be on mission with. And when they look out to their neighbor, they don't see anyone that they're superior to, but someone to go and share the kind of love that their creator has for them. And you know what that does? That creates a church culture where we also can look to our left and right. We don't see anyone that we feel inferior to either. Where you don't see this exponential effect of loneliness and and fake community, but you actually see an exponential effect of love and peace, patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness. Because the reality is the fruits of the Spirit are something that we have to do together Keeping in step with the Spirit is something that we do together. And I believe that kind of church culture reaches the community around us. And that's the kind of culture that we've been praying for for this church ever since we started. And we'll keep revisiting over and over again because I believe that is what God has called us to. So join me now as I'd love to just pray that God would do that work in our midst and then we'll close in some worship. Father, this morning, I want to pray for anyone in the room 
who has been paralyzed by fear and comparison. God, I pray that we as a church family would be the kind of church that would calm those fears as we love one another in the way that you love us. God, we are loved by you in such a way where we've really got nothing to bring to the table. And yet you still bring us in. You let us join your family, literally. God, may Grace Hill be that kind of family. Where people may come from all kinds of different places. Different loads of baggage. different kinds of pasts, different fears. May we be a place, God, that loves them no matter what. Doesn't require anything. God, grow this in us. Help us to repent where we need to repent us to care for one another well. Help us to minister the love of Christ to one another in radical ways. We pray for this kind of culture in our church, God. We ask these things in Christ's name.